For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Friday, September 29th. In a normal year, the fall TV season will be in full swing right now. Premieres of new and returning shows on the broadcast networks. We talk so much about streaming on this show, but broadcast TV is still a $20 billion a year advertising business. That's just in prime time. But obviously, it's a cratering platform. This year, with the strikes killing the scripted shows, it's kind of a depressing new season for sure. But I'm old enough to remember when the fall TV season was a very big deal. You'd wait all summer through the reruns, and then boom, school starts and your favorite shows are back all at once. You had to watch them when they aired or hope you get a rerun later. Seems crazy now to think of the time slot wars that went on. I remember when Fox moved The Simpsons, which was my favorite show, opposite The Cosby Show, which was my second favorite show. I freaked out. You actually had to choose or try to figure out how to record one on those 30-pound VCRs. Looking back with a 2023 perspective, these shows back then were generating ratings that are unthinkable today. When the second season of The Cosby Show premiered in the fall of 1985, it generated a 57 share. That means 57% of all TVs in use at the time were watching one show. Pretty insane. One of the executives who developed Cosby, as well as Cheers, Seinfeld, Golden Girls, and many other classics, is Warren Littlefield, who then ran NBC from 1991 to 1998 during the heyday of the must-see TV era. If you follow the TV business, you know his name. These days, he's a very successful producer with shows like Handmaid's Tale, Dope Sick, The Old Man, and Fargo, which is coming back in November. That's what he's up to today, but I wanted to do a show where we go back, nostalgia a little bit get Warren to tell some war stories about running a TV network in the heyday of TV networks. Friends, ER, Frasier, Fresh Prince. Today, it's Warren Littlefield, and when everybody watched the same shows. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Warren Littlefield. If you know anything about television or the television business, you know Warren's name, and I want to welcome him to the show. Welcome. It's great to be here, Matt. You are a successful television producer now, but today is not about that. Today is because I was looking at the calendar and saying, you know what? It's the fall TV season, but it's not. It's reality shows and competitions. And it just got me thinking about the heyday 
of the fall season when it was a very big deal. 10 year old me would find the copy of TV Guide or the LA Times calendar section and get super excited about all the shows coming back and all the new shows. And I was looking at some of the articles from that era, and it is crazy the audience share and the number of people that were tuning into shows that weren't even hits. And I said, you know, we got to get Warren in here to do an episode just about the the heyday of primetime television and maybe some lessons that it might teach us for today. So I want to start with you. Just give us a sense of the cutthroat, competitive nature of primetime television when there were three and then four networks. Well, it was pretty crazy. And we competed for audience, but we also were very beholden to advertisers because there was only one revenue stream, and that was advertising. And so we played the game to win. And every morning at 6 a.m., popping out of my fax machine would be the overnight ratings for 17 markets. And it was a report card. I don't know about you, but not my best day in my life getting a report card when I was going to school. Um, (laughs) This was every single day, get a report card. What was the biggest surprise report card you ever got? The show you never thought would be a hit or a miss, and you saw those numbers and you're like, holy shit. Probably ER. I think we had been beaten down by a sense that the competitive landscape, there were just too many choices out there. There were four networks, uh, cable was on the rise, and there was a lot of discussion about giving away 10 p.m. That's what my management wanted to do. They wanted. What do you mean by that, giving away 10 p.m.? They wanted to give it to the news division and just say, you know what, strip a news show. Oh, there was discussion of that? There was a Diane Sawyer deal that Bob Wright was very upset that he didn't nail her. And he said, I'll give you 10 o'clock Monday through Friday. Wow. Diane Diane Sawyer did not take that bait. It's so funny to think about that because obviously now we consider that the heyday. And then Jeff Zucker, when he was at NBC, he actually did that. He gave the 10 p.m. slot to Jay Leno. Yes, he did. (laughs) You know, that time period and networks used to be considered extremely valuable. And while they are still valuable, it's not the same level of value. Oh, of course not. No. I mean, and now the notion that 27% of TVs would be tuned to anything except the Super Bowl is kind of nuts. I mean, when given the choices and the fact that the macro culture is gone and everything, it's just, it, you really got a sense in the 90s, the next morning that everybody had watched the thing that you watched the night before. Well, that collective experience, I think, was so essential to what we were doing and who we are. It sort of defined television, really. Yeah, at the height of the must-see era, we were averaging 75 million Americans were watching at least some of Thursday night. That was a third of the country. And so we were beating our combined three other network competition by massive margins. All right. So I want to get a little bit into the kind of cutthroat nature of these battles in prime time, because I remember when I was a kid and the Simpsons moved 
to Thursday nights opposite the Cosby show, which was a cataclysmic moment in my young life because I had to choose or I had to figure out how to work the VCR, which I didn't. And these were decisions that were painstakingly researched and debated and focus group. Give us an example of a big time slot move that you undertook that paid off. Our bold move was take Frazier from Thursday after one year and moving it to Tuesday at nine o'clock. And that move was to go up against Roseanne. Well, we looked at Roseanne and said, hey, show's been around for a while. It's not quite the powerhouse it was. And so did we think we would beat Roseanne? We didn't. But it was very important to give advertisers an opportunity for our upscale young adult audience and to go into Tuesday night and be the adult comedy alternative to family comedy at ABC. So we get through the summer and ABC is looking at all these competitive numbers and they're freaking out. And they're like, by the way, Frazier could beat us. And so in August, they make an announcement that they're taking Home Improvement, their number one rated comedy, and they're putting it up against Frazier. So now, like, do we have the balls to stay with our move? A lot of people at NBC are like, retreat, go back to Thursday. We can't do it. Well, advertisers had embraced it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait a second. We took in all this money. We believe in our show. We know we're not going to be number one, but we get in the game on Tuesday. That move alone propelled NBC to go to the top and not look back for the must-see TV years. That propelled us to You built around that Tuesday move. Yeah. By the way, who came up with must-see TV? Is there an origin story or are there like 30 marketing executives who claim on their resumes to have created that? There's only a handful of uh, marketing people, but it was- (laughs) Or if you want to take credit, go for it now. No, no, no. We called it internally Mm -hmm. a night of bests. Mm -hmm. So take your best comedy, take your best drama, and put it on Thursday. And that history started with Hill Street Blues, then LA Law, Cosby, Cheers, then Seinfeld, and then Frasier, right? And so we called it our night of bests. And then we said in an internal meeting, we said, how do we do something with that? How do we make a proclamation in marketing where it's the night of bests? Just to be clear, Thursday, if I remember, had higher ad rates because the movie studios wanted to get people to start thinking of what they were going to see that weekend. Am I right about that? Absolutely. And when Thursday became Thursday, Movie studios were like, if they had a hot film that was tracking well, it was, this will put us over the top. We must have advertising on Thursday night. And if they had a film that wasn't tracking well enough, then they would make that move. So I would get calls going, they're desperate at Sony, Paramount, whatever. They have to get another 30-second spot on Thursday night in the heart of my CTV. What can you do? And I think I could say that there were times where I adjusted and I made additional 30 seconds appear so that we could make that move. You didn't tell Kelsey Grammer about that, I hope. No, I didn't. I didn't (laughs) didn't check with anybody. 
<laughs> I just went into the basement. We did a little virus speed and um, no one was the wiser. What's the worst pilot you ever shot? You ever actually made? Red Pepper. What, what is that? <laughs> a talk show host puppet. Nice. Yeah, it was it was the worst ever. But Seinfeld, the year we made that pilot, it screened well at our screenings. And then the research came in and it was unbelievably disastrous. Right. Doesn't Larry David have that on that note on his wall or something? I have it framed um, <laughs> and I have it signed by the cast and Larry and Jerry, of course. George is too unlikable. They're all Frame, unlikable. Yeah, they're all unlikable. Who are these people? I hate them. The audience, basic, we know who Jerry Seinfeld is, and we think he's funny. This is just a really bad show. Um, and, and so we ordered everything that fall, and Seinfeld wasn't included. And then literally at the last moment, we got to a, okay, the rights are expiring. What are we going to do? And I was on the phone with Glenn Padnick, and he said, throw me a bone, do something. So I went to finance. I walked down the hall that night and I was like, we are going to lose Seinfeld. You know, and he said, you spent all your money. I was like, there's always more money. And he said, well, you know, we did develop it out of variety and specials. So I dumped Bob Hope's two hour birthday special. <laughs> and from that, I got the money for four episodes. And Jerry and Larry were convinced that they would never air. And right. so they decided they would make the show for their friends. And they thought at some point in the future, they would have a dinner party and they would say, here's the pilot and the four episodes that NBC never aired. And all they wanted to do was entertain their friends. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of focus that they had was all about really one of the key ingredients of why they succeeded. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Do you think that if Netflix put a show on live at the same time all over on a Thursday night at 9 p.m. that people would gravitate at the same time in any meaningful number. I think they could do a stunt. Yeah, like the Chris Rock special, I think they did well for them. Something, Unbelievably like well. 
Yeah. Yeah. But there's a, but there's no innate desire anymore for people to watch something communally at the same time. You're saying if they just put Wednesday on at 9 yeah, p.m. The Wednesday world premiere of season two is coming January 24th at 8 p.m. on Netflix. Let's all watch it together. Great stunt. They absolutely should do it. I don't think it lasts over time, but it's an amazing stunt. And that moment is like live sports. Right. It's that big and it has that immediacy. Yeah. And I don't want to miss what that's going to be. I have to be there. That's a wonderful appointment. And I think creative platforms are going to say, how do we calendarize and make more events as perhaps networks are losing the ability to do that? How do we do that? And you could do something where like, if you don't watch it at 8 p.m. on Tuesday, the full season isn't on Netflix until Thursday or Friday. So you better watch it then or the next day at school, your friends are going to be talking about Wednesday and you're not going to be talking about it. I think that's true. I think it would be an event and you should call Ted. <laughs> Free idea. Ted, give me a call. And also it would have to air on Wednesday, Matt. You missed an easy opportunity. Oh, thank you, Craig. This is why Craig is the brains of this show. You do it on a Wednesday and everybody yes. watches and then the show goes up that weekend. So you have a sneak preview. Yeah. Didn't you make an OJ Simpson pilot? at some point yeah yep we did what was that one about i was well right before the incident the murders yes so he was a black ops agent you know literally in this pilot he has a knife he is no he is dressed in black and had it ever been used if it was admitted as evidence and they couldn't because of the way it was illegally seized, um, it would have been unbelievably damning for jurors to see that. Wait, I'm sorry. The, the pilot was illegally seized? How? Did he have a copy? Yeah. Oh, wow. So this never aired anywhere. It's not, I can't find this on the internet. You can't. Oh, my God. Someone out there, someone who worked at NBC in the 90s, put the OJ pilot on YouTube. I don't think you'll find it. However. When we were in, you know, scheduling wars, when mm -hmm. someone would make a move, maybe against our fall premiere, and we thought it was like a really inappropriate move, uh, once or twice, Preston Beckman, our head of scheduling and strategic planning, may have said to another network, if you stay with this move, we will take the OJ pilot and we will play it against you. And at this point, it was the trial of the century. And so it was this massive threat where we had no rights to it. But once or twice, we played that card and our rivals backed down. That is amazing. So you threatened to use the OJ pilot where he has a knife and kills people to get people to back away from your big hits. Yes. <laughs> yeah. that's I, a, that's I, I don't know that I'm proud of all this. Now, but, listen, it was a I'm, long time ago. Listen, we all did crazy things in the 90s. So it's so funny to see these numbers because, you know, if you look at the ratings these days, 10 million viewers is like the biggest hit in prime time. And that's right. 10 million viewers, when you were running NBC, would have gotten you canceled so quickly, you would not even get the four episodes of Seinfeld. That's absolutely right. So the metric now is, do you believe in it? 
Do you believe that there's growth? Do you believe that there's a future? And the network is part of a larger content distribution ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So the network is still a part of that ecosystem. It just doesn't have the power and the reach that it once had. But you get a show like Abbott Elementary, a network hit. Yeah, that would have been a hit in the 90s, I think. I think it would. It's laugh out loud entertaining. It makes you feel good. It gives the audience what I call the vitamins and minerals that they need. So the Friends pilot comes in. What's your first reaction? We love it. It's crazy that television wasn't playing in that space. They weren't looking at that phase of people's lives. Well, it's interesting you say that because didn't Cameron Crowe recently say that he was asked to make a singles TV show by NBC? And he said no. And then they basically did a not not. I mean, obviously, young people is not a protectable genre, but they did a version of it and it became friends. I've never heard that story. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I will say we did a handful of scripts going after that target Mm -hmm. and none of them ever got piloted because we didn't think they were very good. So what would an episode of Friends generate? money-wise, for NBC at the height of its power? Our profitability was over a billion dollars a year, and the lion's share of that profitability came from Thursday night. Mm -hmm. And we didn't own those shows. We rented them. It was an amazing business because we dominated it to that extent. Um, And remember, it's not just the advertising time that you could sell inside of friends, right? It's the adjacents. So, hey, we might not be able to get you in friends, but you'll be a part of this night. The thing that was going on in the 90s was that most of the shows were not owned by the networks that aired them. The FinCEN rules had been taken down in the early 90s, and the consolidation of production and distribution via the networks was changing, but you still had most of those shows, all that, I mean, most of those Thursday night shows were owned by Warner Brothers or Sony in the case of Seinfeld or Paramount in the case of Frasier. As a producer now, do you lament that the FinCEN rules were abolished? Do you wish that there was a rule against owning what you broadcast? For independent producers, losing the FinCEN rule was not good. And so in a world where you want the greatest number of people to bring all of that content to the marketplace, in that sense, there's some regret. However, it was kind of existential for networks. Having the ability to vertically integrate was about financial survival because, remember, average household was going from a half a dozen channel choices that were available to them to 200. And that rise was so steep. And you had people like Bob Wright, who looked at it strategically and said- Who who ran NBC at the time, it was above you, yeah. Came out of GE, Mm -hmm. all about strategic thinking, and said, our future is going to be being vertically integrated. He was right. Well, there's a whole movement now to bring it back that the consolidation of the streaming services and we're headed towards this world where there may just be 
two or three super services that dominate streaming. And there are many who say, let's just reinstate the FinCEN rules so that these streamers can't own their own content or must own only 50% of their content or something like that to at least keep this creative ecosystem alive. Do you agree with that? I think keeping the creative ecosystem alive is essential. Do I think that we will be in a place where that gets enacted? I suspect not. I think that that's going to be very, very hard to put that through. I hope there is not more consolidation in our industry. We need to have a seat at the table for everyone. And we don't need fewer studios. We need them to be healthy and we need them to be able to function. Any lessons from that era that you think apply today from the must-see TV era? It's just so different. The notion of aggregating a huge audience around anything. You pay attention to the Netflix radio. That's the closest thing we have these days, I think, to those Friday morning Nielsen's where we would see yeah. that, you know, 50% of TVs were tuned into something. So my lessons learned were respect the audience. You can do very well if you respect what the audience is capable of engaging with. And sure, people can do low rent things and make a living with that. But if you want quality audience, you do quality material. And great programming can break through. That's kind of how I run my company and do what I do. Listen, did Hulu expect The Handmaid's Tale to be the hit that it became, to be the international worldwide phenomena that it became? They did not, but it did. Well, D Donald Trump probably had a little bit to do with it, that. It's a great show. I love it. But it, 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 it arrived at the exact right time. That's absolutely correct. And Hulu said, maybe we have the right show for the world that we're living in. And they supported it. So I think that there's a great hunger out there still for great programming. And that can be tough subject matter, like The Handmaid's Tale, like Dope Sick. Or you can make something that's more absolutely thoroughly and as entertaining as Abbott Elementary. Last question. We had 600 scripted series last year heading into this strike. How many do you think we're going to have in the years after the strike? Half. It'll half. be half. You yeah. think about 300. Truly, I'm guessing. But I think the streaming services have to show that they can stand on their own and have profitability. And so instead of streaming wars, where it's just, it doesn't matter how many, doesn't matter what they cost, keep making more content um, in order to get more subscribers. That's now about much more strategic. We think this will grab attention, maybe get some critical acclaim and hold on to subscribers. We have to make this business make sense. So I think John Landgraf is absolutely correct. He's the head of FX. And John is saying that it can't last. And, and he's right. It, he was finally right after 10 years of saying it. Yeah, he's been right about a lot of things. <laughs> no, I know. I make fun of him. But he was, he's was he been talking about peak TV for a decade. And then this year, I think we finally are going. I have hit the peak. That's right. All right. Well, I hope your shows are part of the, the 300 because I really enjoy them. I'm looking forward to the new Fargo in November. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. All right. We're back with the call sheet. 
Greg, four big movies opening this weekend. The Creator, Dumb Money, the Paw Patrol movie, and Saw 10. Kind of rare that we have four big movies. Uh, by the way, which of those four do you think I have seen already? Well, considering you have, what, a six or seven-year-old son, I'm going to go with Paw Patrol. That is correct. I have seen the Paw Patrol movie. It's fun. Kim Kardashian's in it. I went to the premiere. Oh, right. There were lots of kids dancing around to the Paw Patrol theme song. But that is not expected to win the weekend. Which of those four do you think would come out on top? The creator is like a big sci-fi movie from Gareth Edwards. Dumb Money is the GameStop movie that's expanding wide. Paw Patrol, you know, and Saw 10, you know. Um, wow, good question. I'm going to go with Saw X. Saw X is the correct answer. The tracking is 23 million for the weekend, according to the services that I have seen. So this is, the, is this the 10th Saw? You tell me. I don't know. It says Saw 10 in the title. Are they lying? This has to be the first time ever in the history of movies that two 10th installments of franchises have come out in the same year. Yeah, both of them with X in the name. Yes. Yes. Fast, Fast X, X and Saw, Saw X. X. So I'm going to do a rare four-movie parlay on the over-under oh, this weekend. Okay. So Saw 23, I, I'm going to take the over on that. I think you know we're into the Halloween season, and it is a franchise. So I'll take the over on Saw X. Paw Patrol is supposed to come in second. That is at 19. I'm also going to take the over on that. Uh, I'm, I'm a little nervous about that one just because I wonder... Having seen it, if it's going to play too young, but I'll still take the over. I think there's enough kids like my kid that want to see it. Then the creator, that is at 17 million. Original sci-fi. I wish this movie would do better, but I just feel like the awareness of it is not high. And I'm going to take the under on 17. And then Dumb Money, the tracking's only at seven or eight million for the weekend that's the GameStop movie I just don't think this is going to resonate at all the numbers in the platform release haven't been great so I'm going to take the under on dumb money I think I agree with all of your predictions the only one I would grapple with is the dumb money one just because the movie looks like a knockoff big short and I think people like those kind of uncover the financial world underbelly genre it kind of seems like a Adam McKay movie it's Adam McKay light. Yes, for sure. But it is yeah. the I, Tanya director. I saw, uh, oh, I saw this movie. Uh, what am I talking about? I've seen this movie and I just hadn't seen it lately. I saw it at Toronto. So my initial question to you is total bullshit. I have seen Dumb Money. I liked it a lot. I just wonder if anyone else is going to see it because I feel like it just doesn't, the GameStop thing is like too recent in history. I just, I wonder. Let me ask you something. If Paw Patrol is geared towards seven-year-olds, why is Kim Kardashian in it? Because they would very much like it to not be geared towards seven-year-olds. I mean, it's not just her. Like, Serena Williams is in it for 10 seconds. You know, they have a lot of people that pop up. And the goal was to be able to use those people to promote the movie. They kind of got screwed because of the SAG strike. None of those people can promote the movie. So they're not getting the benefit of having Kim Kardashian in the movie. But that's the thinking. You know what? I'm going to change. I'm going to change. I'm going to take the okay. under on Paw Patrol. 19 sounds high. I'm going to I'm going to take the under. Okay, so just to recap, over on Saw, under on Paw Patrol, under on Dumb Money, under on The Creator. Three unders, one over. Yes. Three out of four. Saw is going to be the winner at 23. Paw Patrol, under on 19. Dumb Money, 
under on, let's say, eight, and the creator under on 17. So if you get all four right, you need to get all four correct. And if you do, I will wipe away 10 missed calls from 2023. That's how this works. Wow. But you need to get all four right. You need to go four for four. I thought you were saying 10 missed calls that I have called you to try to talk about something and then you didn't want to talk to me about it. (laughs) I'm always answering for you, Matt. Yes, that's true. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Warren Littlefield. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.